in this episode, I sit down with Alfonso Montiel of Silverstone Hospice, located right here in Dallas-Fort Worth. We talk about his time spent in refugee camps, the Amazon jungle, whether or not he would change his name to Alfredo, his time spent volunteering at a hospice, and finally, his story about acquiring a hospice and how that has changed his life for the better. Alfonso's passion for life and storytelling are two of the many reasons he is so enjoyable to sit and visit with. So appreciate him making the time for me, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode of Let's Hear It. Everybody. Welcome back to episode number three of Let's Hear It. I'm here with Alfonso. Why don't you do your last name? Montiel. There we go. Alfonso, thanks so much for sitting down with me um, here at the Silverstone headquarters. I'm excited to, to talk to you about your background. Um, I'm also excited to hear about your hospice business, what you all were doing, and why it's important for really everybody in the right place uh, to be familiar with hospice services. So thanks for sitting down with me. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. So one of the things that I think we should start with is why are we sitting in a building in which you are running a hospice business? Yeah. Can we start there? We can start there. And, and, and I wish the, your listeners could, could see it because it doesn't look like a hospice company. It doesn't look like what you think is a hospice company. I agree with that. It's, 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 there's a lot of white, there's a lot of very tall spaces, lots of windows, very modern, very sleek, more like, um, I would say, uh, a California technology company than it is a hospice company. It almost feels like you built this building or you designed this building so that someone could record a podcast. It, it could be. It could be. And that alone should be an invitation of um, how we do things differently here at Silverstone Hospice. Um, so I'll tell you about that and then I'll tell you how I got, how I got here and what we're doing. You, you have, you personally have an amazing story. Um, and there are actually a couple articles about you in the universe already. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll let everybody research that on their own. Um, Thank you. but I would love to hear about your journey. And then also, like you said, why Silverstone is different. Um, thank you. Um, I'll start with misconceptions I had of hospice before I got into this business. I, um, I used to think hospice um, was a building. I'm talking about a building where people go to die. Not true. Hospice is a service um, that goes to whatever you call home. In some cases, home will be a building like this one. It would be a, a hospital, it would be an assisted living facility, but mostly... It's, uh, it's proven over and over statistically. Um, most people, especially Americans, would prefer to die at home. So the ideal hospice service happens, I think, for most people if they could wish for it. At home, whatever they call home. Misconception number two, I thought hospice is only for people that are at the end, last days of their lives. Uh, not true. Some people in hospice are there six months, some people are there a year, some people are there two years. It is designed by law for the last six months, but um, the moment of your death, um, it's only decided by God. So doctors might have an idea, family has an idea, but it's complex. So people can be in hospice for a long time. 
the third misconception I had is that it was very expensive because I know everything that hospice services bring and we'll go through some of it. And the truth is that hospice is free. It is provided by uh, Medicare or your insurance if you have insurance that covers this. So we can talk more in more detail about this, but it is the, the truth is is a gift is a gift that if you're lucky you get. Um, it is it is um, known and proven to prolong the life of the people that are in hospice when you arrived early enough, enough in your diagnosis. Um, and but you asked me, how did I get here? Um, I was a vigil volunteer. I was a hospice volunteer. Um, I used to hold the hands, um, sit next to uh, next to the bed of people that are dying alone, uh, and uh, taking the last breath um, with me there. And I did this, um, not knowing what I was getting myself into. I I was actually helping build farms in in refugee camps in northern Iraq. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and um, it was um, uh, a dear friend of mine has started an organization called Lemon Tree Trust where the, the, it, um, he came to demonstrate the healing power of gardening and farming in situations where there's a, a, a human catastrophe or human crisis, um, primarily around forced displacement. So we were operating in what is the uh, northern Iraq in the border with Syria. Is where is where Syria, uh, Iran, um, Iraq, and Turkey meet. So that's what I was doing, and uh, I thought it was the most interesting thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> you, were you? How long were you over there? Um, well, I was in and out. Okay. Uh, and um, so you, you you were volunteering. Obviously, hospice is a kind of a U.S. program. So you were here volunteering and then going back and forth with the lemon. Yeah. So lemon I, Trust. I was, I was, I became CEO of Lemon Tree Trust, and I, and I was doing that work. And my favorite uncle died, and before that, I I had done primarily what I now call traditional jobs, which is finance, and um, I had started a private equity firm, and before that, I was a strategy consultant for um, the likes of GE, Nabisco. Um, Bristol Myers Squibs. Uh, I did some work for Rolls Royce, um, so it, it doesn't get more traditional. And and before that, it was even more traditional. I was a lawyer, um, so I went from doing those things into into war zones and refugees. And I, when I was doing that job, um, that 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 work, uh, which was unbelievable. It's um, I, I I I can try to explain to you what it feels being in a refugee camp where. You see the best of humanity and the worst of humanity all happen at, one, at once. And you see the power, the incredible power that gardening brings to those people. Some of the refugees from Syria actually leave their countries with seeds in their pockets. And the moment they arrive at a refugee camp, and if you can visualize, it's just in the middle of the desert with lots of uh, tents with a, with a UN sign on them. And one of the first things they do is build a garden. Um, and that brings them uh, peace. That reminds them of home and some of the ingredients of the food they're going to cook. They, they get it from there. And, and not to get into too much detail, in a refugee camp you have, and this one had about 30, 34, 36,000 people living there. Um, and you have weddings, you have funerals, you have soccer games, 
It's, uh, it's, it's fantastic. So I thought, okay, it doesn't get any better than this. Then hospice arrived. Uh, my favorite uncle died, and uh, he lived an amazing life. So I wasn't sad that and he, he died of, of older age and um, complications with cancer. Um, I, was, I was not happy that I couldn't be there for him. And it hit me that as an immigrant, I was born in, in Venezuela, and I came here to go to business school. I went to, to Columbia University. Um, I came over here, and then you come to the U.S., and it's all work, 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 work. Uh, like we all do, and I, I that, that that coming from you have your MBA right? Yes, and your law degree. Yes, <laughs> and um, so work, 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 and I, I I arrived to funerals mostly. I never got there when my family or my mother or my grandmothers or my other uncles were sick and needing somebody to be there and being loving. It was it was that simple. I said, um, um, I don't know. I, I was I'm 51 now. I must have been 48. 49, and I thought, this, this is not right. Um, um, the people that took care of me, uh, I cannot take care of them. Who takes care um, of those that are dying alone in America? That was my question. And I found hospice with the misconceptions I described earlier. Was, was your uncle able to take advantage of hospice services, number one, and then number two, early enough? Where no, you can no. Um, I mean, he ha he has um, um, children that were there with him and his his new wife, but no, no. Um, in um, I don't think any of us in our family understood hospice. Um, certainly, I didn't. So I volunteered. I literally googled a few companies, and one of them said, "I, I said I'm I'm a CEO. I have spare time on my I'm a, I'm a single father." father. My daughter is a teenager, and I said, I can spend weekends and, and nights taking care of people who are dying, um, and I'm free. And um, only one company responded. And, um, and my first patient was in his, um, I think he was almost 100. His name was Harry. Harry was the son of opera singers, so I, and he was almost deaf and almost blind. And when, every time I arrived to see him, he had this little radio with very loud music, and he didn't want me to know that he couldn't see or hear. So I had to scream to talk to him. And um, it was uh, one of the first things he did was, do you mind cleaning my teeth? And he took the mouth. And, and I'm like, how do I clean teeth? I, I didn't know a lot of those things because I hadn't been able to take care of my elders. Um, he lasted way longer. Than, when I arrived, they told me he was dying that day. When he died, I was incredibly sad. I cried a lot. And um, the nurses basically presented their report, their hospice then, saying Harry had lasted way longer than he should have because Alfonso was there. Who was Alfonso? The volunteer. So I started volunteering for more and more patients. And every time it happened, I cried. And I was, it hit me. I would get home and it hit me that the tears were tears of, of um, gratitude. I was grateful. I felt honored. And I wanted to learn more now. Now my business side kicked in. Um, and I was, I don't think, I, well, I now know that none of the people, the nurses that were there, um, they didn't know that this volunteer had the capacity of acquire a hospice company. I, I, I would hear, especially if they were speaking in Spanish, people would say, um, abuela is with the priest, or abuela is with the nurse, or abuela is with the, with the doctor. I mean, they would say behind the door. So, so, 
let's leave a well alone with the priest. And I was laughing inside thinking, why, why, why is it that they think those things about me? And now looking back is because I was, I was present in a way that normally they would only see a priest or the doctor or the nurse being present with a loved one. And I started thinking, how can I do this better? How can we do that? I was watching the nurses and think, well, if I was the nurse, I would do this. If I was the chaplain, I would do that. And um, one day driving from one of the patient visits, I called the volunteer coordinator, um, Nichelle, who's now our director of operations here um, I, at Silverstone. I called Nichelle and I said, um, I wish I could do this forever. I wish I could do this for the rest of my life. And I didn't realize it wasn't a wish, it was a prayer. Because a few weeks later, I was searching for hospice companies to buy. And I went and I met with a um, broker and I said, I want a company with these characteristics. I want it to be um, um, big enough that it can sustain itself, but small enough that we can change the culture and do things differently. Um, because if it's too big, it was going to be very hard to change it from the beginning. That's what I thought. And, and I said to him, and give me a company where the founder is selling it because he or she wants to retire. So I wanted a company that came with a good heart. And he said to me, well, every the requirement that you gave me, it's impossible. You're not going to find a company like this. And if you find it, they're not going to sell it to you. I said, why? Because they, want some, they will want somebody who has done this before. I said, but if the somebody who's done it before comes with the bad habits, I said, you want to sell it to somebody who's never done it before so we can do it differently, knowing what I know. And they asked me, do you have hospice experience? I said, not running it, but I've been sitting next to people dying for a year. So you learn a thing or two. And, I'm a, and I have an MBA and I have a law degree. I can do this. And um, broker said, you're never going to find it. I said, I'm going to call you every Monday. And every Monday I called until he said he found one and it was under LOI already. I said, I'm going to keep on calling you. He then said, it fell through. The buyer couldn't find the money. And I said, where can I meet the, the, the seller and where can, I, where can I sign that letter of intent? And here we are a year later. And that was when we got connected. It yeah. was when that whole transition, probably right after, it was after that a whole acquisition had happened. Yes, it was right there. And a lot has happened. A lot has happened, including a pandemic. Including a pandemic, including the whole state freezing over, which as one of the things I want to hear from you on how that affected your staff, because I know patients uh, had to experience some problems in their homes. Yes. Um, so we'll get to that. Um, you know, before we move on, so one of Silverstone's, um, it, it looks, seems like one of the missions is no one dies alone. Yes. Did that come from what you experienced with not being able to be there with your uncle? Was that, is that coming from you or was that already in existence at comfort care before? It no, it, it, you're right. It came with me. I'm not saying other people haven't done it, but the no one dines alone program came from my own need because I wasn't there. Um, my, not to get too graphic, my mother died having lunch um, and I wasn't there. Um, and none of my siblings was there. Um, same for my grandmothers, same, I wasn't there. And I, I don't think, we celebrate birth, right? Um, we celebrate graduations and the, the end of life is a very sacred time. 
it's for those of us who, who are spiritual and believe in a God, like, like I do, and, and I also believe in angels. Um, it, this is a time where we go back to, um, to, to him or to God, to source, to where we come from. So it, it, it is a graduation. It should be a celebration. And I want to be able to do, to do that. It's sad. It, but, but yes, the No One Dies Alone program. Um, and, and, and by all means, tell me if, if, if you want to ask any questions, because I, I get excited. Do, do talking. I need to? <laughs> <laughs> I get excited about this and I can stop talking. I, um, well, I think what you're, I'm, I'm not, this is beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, and I think why hospice is so unique is because of what you're talking about. It, and I mentioned this with my conversation with um, Sarah Files. It's a, it's a calling people and I think it's a calling for nurses chaplains social workers um, yeah. business owners it's a calling and and I didn't know what a calling was again and, and at, at, at 51 I probably have done more different things than the average person does again I used to run a shipping company then lawyer then strategy consultant then then investments then war zones then this and at each point I was happy with what I was doing. I was proud, but it wasn't a calling. Um, the calling is there when what you do for work and what you do for love become one. And that's what I discovered volunteering. Um, and let me tell you something else, um, if, if, if you don't mind. You talked about what has happened this past year. Um, I couldn't believe that <laughs> a pandemic <laughs> happened exactly within weeks of the acquisition of the company where um, I had ahead an entire plan for rebranding, new technology, new training, new people, new office. New, new building. I was new building. That. And we had to do all of that in the middle of a pandemic. And it was, it was scary at first. In the beginning, the staff didn't know how to handle it. Um, and I have to report that we are very good uh, at anticipating, both medically. One of the one of the secrets of our success at hospice is we we try to at Silverstone Hospice we anticipate patients' needs, decline. We're constantly anticipating. We did the same thing with the pandemic. The moment the pandemic showed up and it was as serious as, as, it, as it, we thought it was going to be, we went ahead and bought a lot of protective equipment to the extent that we arrived at facilities and we had to give equipment to the nurses in those facilities. Uh, people didn't have masks. We had a team of volunteers, um, senior ladies that called themselves the happy hookers, funny enough, and they had a, there was a, it was a crochet team. That was not my first interpretation. Uh, but they, the happy hookers started making thousands of masks for us. So we show up to places with these beautiful masks to give to people even before people know they had to cover their faces. Before it was mandated. Before it was mandated. So we were ready. And um, it's, um, I'm happy to report we did not lose a single patient to hospice. Uh, we had had patients and team members that had, um, so to COVID, sorry, we didn't lose any patients to, to COVID. We, um, we, um, we managed to navigate um, the whole pandemic growing, we continue to grow. And um, 
for the readers, so the, no, the, the listeners that um, don't know what hospice is, um, if, if you don't mind me adding that for a second, is so hospice is is a treatment, is an aggressive symptom management. Uh, what the difference between hospice and other healthcare disciplines is you're no longer pursuing curative treatment for a particular disease. You're only managing the symptoms of that disease. And um, the, a great hospice does a few things for people that people are not aware about. It, it, includes, it includes physician oversight, 24-hour uh, on-call nurses, the medical equipment and supplies are included, free. They're part of the deal. Um, medication for pain management and symptom control, routine home care, literally a nurse's aide come to help you take a shower or bath if you need to, get dressed, um, house chores, everything that, that you might need. And, 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 and as your condition deteriorates, those aides show up up to seven days a week. Same with the nurse. Crisis care, respite, respite care for the caregiver. It, this is um, when somebody's going through a, a terminal illness, it's very hard for the family. So we, we help with that. Um, and mental health and wellness support, bereavement support, the, the No One Dies Alone program that is now built of volunteers like I was a volunteer. I call myself, I'm the CEO, but I call myself the chief volunteer. And I still show up and volunteer. Yeah, I was going to ask if you still volunteer. Oh, yes. Yes, I do. And, and, and one of the things, the one thing I don't enjoy about my CEO job is that I cannot be every day visiting a patient um, because it, it, um, that's, that gives me uh, the joy to do what I do. I tell myself that because of the work that we do, we get to serve more and more and more patients and hopefully um, continue to grow in, in serving our patients. But, but that's what we do. And um, the team that actually gets to see the patients on a daily basis is, is, is the doctors, the nurses, the nurses' aides, the social worker, the chaplain, and, and the volunteers. And, and that's the importance of hospices in general, is managing that team, managing the process, getting out there, um, communicating to the family, and making sure that everything is delivered on time and at whatever frequency yeah. that you need. Yeah. And, and to anticipate and help educate the family when it comes to what the disease process looks like and what the journey is going to be like while treating the person not as their disease but as their story. What uh, the person that you now see in a bed having difficulty uh, functioning like they used to a few years ago, that person used to be the manager of a store, that person used to be a policeman, that person used to be a doctor. So we make sure that all of our team treats the person as who they are and their story while understanding the journey they're in. Um, you would assume every hospice does that. Um, but now, now that you, we share the story, that's the other reason why I'm here and doing the job that I do, because not everybody does it like we should. Do you think that you, you mentioned, might not be a, a problem, but because you all are approaching hospice differently, um, businesses is coming in right and left. I mean, people are hearing about the service, hearing how you all are differently. Yes. Is the combination of the programs, your outlook, do you think that is yeah. why your, your business is, yes. is exploding? And, and um, 
I had hoped this would happen. I didn't know it was going to happen so soon because now we're talking a year later after the, the acquisition of, of the previous company, which, by the way, had been around for 10 years. And um, I thought it was going to take us longer, but we recently had to hire new team members just to handle the volume of, of inquiries and people that are coming to ask for, uh, like I like to say, hospice done the right way. Um, it's, there's a lot of education that we do and that we do with um, our partner institutions and with our team and with the families, again, telling them, um, talking about dying, talking about hospice doesn't make it happen sooner. And, and you're, when you're talking about education, it's also educating folks that you might not think need education. And what I mean is physicians. Yeah. This patient needs to get on hospice as soon as possible. Yes. Um, facilities, we need to come in and this patient, yes. you need to have the discussion yeah. about hospice. So yeah. it, it happens at every level. Um, I'll give you a specific example. We were constant because we're growing, we're interviewing nurses. And, and um, this past week, I had a new nurse come in and interview with us. Uh, one that we hope to hire, wonderful, wonderful human. And, um, and I was asking her about how much time in nursing school she spent learning about hospice. And it was an alarmingly, alarmingly low percentage. So um, it is a difficult topic. Most people don't like to talk about it. Most people assume that you're giving up hope when you bring somebody into hospice. And, and, and it isn't. You never lose the hope. It's designed to, to make whatever time you have left better. Um, people tell Gloria, our administrator, um, I think a family member, she used to tell her, she's been doing this for 30 years, Gloria, who, who you've met. Mm -hmm. And Gloria is a great-grandmother doing hospice for 30 years. And she says, Alfonso, people used to tell me, oh, Gloria, you work with the dying. And she responds back, I work with the living. And with the living that because of our work tend to live longer, with the living that if the whole system understand that the earlier in the diagnosis you can express there's this opportunity for you there's this gift called hospice that is going to make everything better for the family um the better we would all be um we're getting you comfortable could potentially be prolonging your life as you mentioned with uh yeah. with your time with the the volunteer yeah. services and i'll speak about myself now I, I, I my mother's not alive my grandmother's not alive most of my uncles are not alive so i know that i'm next i mean whether it happens in 10 50 years i hope it's closer to 50 than 10 but i'm next i like to die with hospice services around me i like to die when somebody guiding me telling me six months before this is what's going to happen and this is how this last six months are going to be the best you've ever had these are the months where you get to reconcile what your life was about these are the months where a chaplain comes to you as much as you need them because we provide that for free to help me reconcile to help me forgive to help me ask for forgiveness it's, it's very deep it's very complex it's very wonderful um, here at the office, and, and you've, you've been here um, now, um, we don't walk around with a somber face dressed in black. Everyone, they, had, everyone had smiles. Everybody's smiling. smiling. Every, it's, it's, it's the blessing to do what we do. It's actually, it's, it, we, it's, a, it's a job, but it's not a job, it's a calling, and it is our, it's our ministry. If you don't stop me, I'll continue going. <laughs> no, I was going to say, let's, <laughs> I'm going to pause there. Um, so, Alfonso, um, we've talked a lot about hospice in general. Um, Silverstone has a unique story. It 
before it became Silverstone, it was Comfort Care. Yes. About 15 miles away from here. Yes. Up in the colony. Yes. Um, you acquired that, and you've made a couple of changes. Um, More what, than a couple. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I'm not giving the whole team <laughs> the whole team enough credit. Yeah, more than a couple. Um, the intent behind the company that you purchased was it had to have heart, and you wanted to grow it so that you could impact more patients, uh, more people in the future. So can you talk about the uniqueness of y'all's care and maybe what the growth looks like the next three to five years? Yes. Um, when I'm in, in our meetings every day, and, and, and for those people not in hospice, we have this thing called a stand up and stand down. So every day, um, the whole team gets to listen about what's happening with every patient and every family reserve um, together. Um, and when I listen to everything we do, and it happens early in the morning, it happens at the close of the day, and then in between, there's still things happening. But at that moment, twice a day, every day, the whole clinical staff gets together to evaluate what, what are the patients and families going to need the next night and, and so on, any changes in condition. Um, and I listen to what we do and how we do it. I, I can tell you that I cannot think of any other company that, that, that provides the levels of care that we do. It's, uh, it's better than anything I have seen. And I ask people more experienced in the industry than I, like Gloria, who's been doing this for 30 years, and, 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 and some of the other team members. And I'm, have you ever seen something like this, like the way we do it? And the answer is no. And I think the, the, the reason for that is we have built a, a culture where we're all allowed to dream together in what the best possible hospice company would look like. I have this phrase that I took from one friend and then I've made it mine and I use it here every day. We use it for interviews. We use it at the beginning of a project. We use this halfway to our careers and when we're moving people to another role in this. If you had a magic wand, what would the next three years look like? What the next five years would look like? What would the next three months look like attached to a particular outcome? So when it comes to the growth, if you ask me if I had a well, magic that is, wand. That is my, my question to you it, is you, yeah. you have a magic wand. Yeah. Yeah, and I have I have two or three, <laughs> but if I, if, I, if I had if I could use the three at the same time, uh, one in each yep. hand, one in my mouth, um, and I'd say that in five years um, we are serving um, an average daily sense of of at least a thousand patients. Um, why? Because that um, I'm an impact junkie. Uh, I know that what we have is great. I want to. I want to be able to share this benefit with as many families as we can. Um, at that size, we can also invest more in improving system, incubating new ways of, of doing hospice. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but hospice as we know it now in the modern world has been only around for 50 years. It was an English nurse, doctor, uh, named Dame Cicely Saunders. Dame Cicely was the first one in the modern hospice sort of movement as we see it today, who combined many disciplines together in caring for those who had terminal diseases. Um, she integrated the care from clinicians with social workers, with spiritual care, that sort of unit that we have here today 
and that we emphasize at Silverstone has been only been around for 50 years. And the reason why it came to the U.S. is because the, I believe it was the dean of nursing school at Yale University. I, I could be wrong, but it was in the Northeast. She did exactly what I did, but 50 years ago. She went to work as a volunteer for Dame Sicily and learned what was being done and brought it here. Um, and that sort of volunteering DNA that we have here, where one of my aspirations is that every staff member of ours has, has to be a volunteer first. Um, that makes us very different. Um, our triage nurse started as a volunteer before she became a nurse. Our director of operations was a volunteer before she came in to do this. Um, Gloria, myself, lots of us in this company were volunteers first. That, that approach to volunteering where you are, um, it's not being forced to be present, where you have no choice when you're in front of somebody that needs you but to be present. It comes from a very deep place. And um, I don't know, I, I want to be able to, to do it for thousands and thousands of people. I, I, I want to do it that. It does feel like that, and maybe every other chaplain, social workers, nurses, they're all on the, the front lines, but being a volunteer feels very intimate and something that unless you're a clinical staff, you're probably not used to doing it unless you've done it with a loved one who's gone through it. Yeah, and, and being a volunteer takes away, you, the, the truth is when you are a member of the clinical staff, you show up to see a patient and you need to do something about it. The volunteer's job sometimes is to do nothing but to be there. To be present. And so, to be present. And people that are going through an illness, sometimes all they want is somebody who shows up there and be present and doesn't need to do anything. So the volunteer doesn't have any problem to resolve. When you have been a volunteer and then you become a nurse and then you become a chaplain and then you become a social worker or you become the, the CEO of a hospice company, it's ingraining you. You know that in some cases you just have to be there. That's the gift. Without wanting to change anything, just being there. You know, one of the things that, and maybe you can talk to us about being present, I have noticed that with you. You're just very present. You're in the moment. You're taking the time to sit down with me, uh, and you've got an organization to run. You made me do I it. I did make you do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you took a very, very long journey in 2013, and it ended up with you spending time in Colorado. Do you want to talk to us about how that helped you be present? Was that a factor at all, spending time with the horse whisperer? Yeah, yeah, it's... Um, and do you, maybe we can take a five-minute break. We get a refill of coffee. Do you want to get into that? No, I'm okay, ready. Let's do it. Yeah. You can we can leave that. No, yeah, that's... We don't... We don't. Yeah, see, I, I, this could be a lot of fun. <laughs> this, yeah, you can we'll leave, leave it one. in. Let, let me tell you a little bit about it. I... I... When I was 30... No, hold on. When I was... 41, 42 years old, I, I got divorced. And I never thought I was going to do that. I never thought I was not going to grow old without um, the woman I had married and then have my grandchildren running around the Christmas tree. I grew up uh, Catholic in, in, in a family where we're all together all the time. And um, that hit me. 
I took it as a failure. I had success in business and, and, and in life and everything else. And that to me was, was, was a big hit. So I, 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 I felt I needed to um, reframe the way I saw myself. And being a, a man who takes risk and loves adventure, I have I've heard of different places that people have been transformed just by visiting. And I always say, one day when I'm successful, I'm going to do this. One day when I'm successful, I might do that. One day when I'm 60, I'm going to do that. Well, I went through a personal crisis, and I had an idea, that, that checklist of things I wanted to do. I think here people call it bucket list. For me, it was just a simple checklist, handwritten, and uh, no buckets. And I said, oh, God, I'm going to do this now. I mean, yes. And I went to my doctor and I said, vaccinate me against everything under the sun because I'm going to do these three trips and I don't know when I'm coming back. And I don't know if when I'm back, my name will be Alfonso or will be Alfredo. I don't know. I'm going to change my life. And this, I, had, I had finished working in, in, as, as an investor. I had an investment firm that I was no longer with, uh, it wasn't though, even though I had started it. And so I took these three trips. The first one was to visit this horse whisperer and outside, two hours outside Durango, Colorado, in the high desert. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a high desert, but there's no there at times, but it's a desert. I, I didn't and, either uh, until you and told she, me it existed. Yeah, and, and, and she lives with seven horses. And I don't know if she calls herself a horse whisperer, but that's what she does. And I've heard of people who have healed their lives by spending time with her and the, and the horses. and. And, and how it taught you to be fully present. And it was remarkable. Um, they, they throw you in this ring with seven horses. And, uh, and she has her methodology and the way you do it. But it's just, you have no choice but to be present. Otherwise, you'll get stepped on and hurt. How long really did you spend hurt. with the horses? And uh, um, not long because I stayed long enough, but not long because then I needed to do the second. So I did this in... Um, I traveled 50,000 mi 50, miles in 50 days. Or was it? No, no. I'm, oh, no. How, how long did I travel? You, 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 no, it's 10,000 miles in 50 days. 10,000 miles in 50 days. Yeah. I did 10,000 miles in, in, because I counted it afterwards in 50 days. So I, need, I wanted to do the whole thing in one, in, swallow everything once. So I did the horses, and then I went to the Amazon jungle. And the border with Peru and Ecuador, if you look at a map, um, it takes about two days or three to get there, but I did. And you get to st I got to stay with a group of people that were trying to um, support um, Indian tribes um, that um, haven't seen people like you and me, uh, people like you and me mean living in, in, in big cities. I don't like when people say they're not civilized. They're very civilized, very civilized, but they're different. Um, this particular tribe... Um, every morning they get together around four or six in the morning and they communicate what they dreamed the night before. And based on what they dream and what they're feeling, they make decisions about the crops and what they're going to do over the next season. It's really very sophisticated when you are there and, and truly incredible. Um, so I did that. Um, slept on banana leaves. Um, it, it was remarkable. And then I went to the border of um, Burma or Myanmar and Thailand on the Thai side because a friend years ago had told me about this uh, German zookeeper from East Berlin who the moment the wall fell 
he decided to rescue and take care of elephants that were retiring that I didn't know either. Elephants in Thailand, for example, they work. So when they retire, they, they don't feel useful anymore. And this man took care of those elephants. Hospice? Maybe not dying, and, <laughs> retired? Yes, they're retired. And, and, they, and they, they deserve the same dignity as somebody who has worked their entire life. So I said, I, I emailed him. He wasn't around. And his son received me there. And I, I just I just stay with them. And, and at that point, they had uh, um, 14 elephants, uh, 12 adult ones and two babies. And um, and I just I just stay there and helped and and did what I needed to do. And that became I kept a journal of that experience. And the journal became a book that is not out yet, but it should be soon about what what I went through uh, in that experience. But I do have to tell you. Um, bringing it back to to hospice, um, I could have not done what we do in hospice now without all of those experiences. Uh, I could have not done hospice and and change it the way I hope we're changing the way people see hospice without that journey. Uh, if you'd have told me three years ago, four years ago, you're gonna be you're gonna own and run a hospice company, I would have I would have looked at you like you're funny. <laughs> But here we are, and I couldn't. I couldn't do. I don't imagine doing my doing anything different. I don't want to do anything different. Um, I want to change the way we think about this. Um, I want to change the way people perceive their own need for hospice. As, as we said a few times in this conversation, um, the sooner you have access to it, grab it, because you're going to be, live longer. And if you do not live longer, I guarantee you, you live better. Um, Anyway, what else? <laughs> One of the things we're going to do this year at Silverstone is we are we're putting together a hospice house. And in our hospice house, we're going to have people that ha have received a terminal diagnosis and have either no family, um, no place to live, uh, or have a family and place to live, but the family cannot take care of them, or people that don't have the funds to, to actually pay for Can hospice. you describe a little bit? You kind of did, but a hospice house is a specific building. It's almost like a nursing facility, but it is a hospice house yeah. run by the yeah. hospice business for patients yes. that have essentially no place to go or a an unfortunate yeah. place to go that that you're, yeah. pl that that's, you're pulling that's them out correct. and caring for them in the home. That's correct in, in the building. And and the and the and the plan is not to make it look like a hospital or a facility. It's a home. It's a home where you feel is your own house. And, um, and our team is going to be there um, receiving you, taking care of you. And one of my um, plans is to have every volunteer that then comes to be a Silverstone take turns to support that house. And I can guarantee you that you cannot walk into the house at a place like this, being a hospice volunteer, and leave a few weeks or months later and be the same person. You just can't. And when I found my calling, hospice and end-of-life care, um, I understood that uh, the things that people say in the past, I'm a doctor because I have this calling, or I'm a painter because whatever calling you have, I thought when people talked about it, Jonathan, for 51 years or for 50 years, I thought when people talk about a calling, they were lying. I thought they were exaggerating. I thought they wanted to make themselves look interesting and with purpose, and I didn't have it. 
and now I found it, and I'm like, geez, it's real. You can find something for which you rest so that you can do it, right? Most people take, they work so they can take a vacation. I don't, in this year, I haven't taken a single day of vacation. But when I do, I'm going to do it so that I have more energy to come back to the office. And this has never happened to me before. So when people say, oh, you, you work with the dying, again, no, we work with the living, and it's such an exciting job, and it's such an exciting mission and exciting purpose that I, I don't turn it off. I don't go home and stop thinking about the patients. I think about it 24-7. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it, and your building shows that, your passion shows that, and your garden on the roof yes. shows that, yes. I think, as well. Yeah. Uh, why is it important? We've heard about your experience gardening. Why is it important that you have that here? Um, you know, it's the, even the story about this building is a particular one because we had another office, and um, I don't live far from here, and I work out very close to here. And one night, very late, I just drove here and I started looking at buildings, and I parked in this parking lot, and I called our CFO, Ben, and I said, I found our office. Ben said, um, it's probably going to be too expensive. Hospice companies are not in buildings like this. And I said, no, this is I have, it. I have visited a hospice that was housed in an old, old Sonic building <laughs> in Oklahoma. You know, and, and I hope they do amazing they job. They do. And I hope that that makes them happy. Uh, but ours had to have light. It had to have openness. You see, ours doesn't have walls. And in the way we work, um, there's a conference room where we all, where we're sitting, you and I now, and it's you can see it's lots of lights. And I want gardens too. We do have meetings in our garden upstairs and the rooftop. And before the snow came in, there were lots of flowers, um, and um, we 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 interview people in the garden. And and you would think hospice companies should have a garden. Again, we have too. And you had asked me about the the storm, the snowstorm. The, yeah, it shut down the whole state. Yes, that, that had to impact not just your business, but your patients. What happened? Yes. Um, it was very scary. Uh, <laughs> but we have been through the COVID, the, the dark days of COVID. I mean, it's getting now a little bit more uh, clear what we all need to do to prevent and to deal with it. But the dark days of COVID were very um, confusing for a lot of people. We, we succeeded. We went through it. No harm done to our patients. Everybody is, is, is well. Um, with the storm, um, again, we anticipate the same way we anticipate patients' trajectories. Um, when we saw the, the conditions that were coming, uh, the senior team got together and said, this could be mild or this could be really, really, really bad. Let's come up with codes that we're going to have for emergency preparedness in case people cannot go from one place to the next. Um, Let's, let's look at every patient that needs a daily visit and have emergency planning just in case. And I think three or four days in advance, any supply that we knew our patients were going to need, we delivered everything in advance. So by the time the, the, the storm hit, and it was way worse than, I, than mm -hmm. any yep. of us thought, um, our patients had all of their supplies and... Um, and there's Nichelle coming in, ruining the live show. <laughs> we, we, Come on down, Nichelle. <laughs> Nichelle, if we need to get a third mic, we can. 
so we, uh, maybe I should start out again. We, we did a lot of anticipation, really. And uh, so supplies have been delivered. We had our traditional routes to get to patient and then plan B for everything. Um, we usually have our staff assigned to, to specific and scheduled for specific patients. And we had that plan A and mm -hmm. plan B. Um, there was one day where we actually reached what we called um, um, the actual worst scenario when everything was covered in snow and, you know, there was an accident in Fort Worth with a hundred and something mm -hmm. cars. So that day, um, myself, Gloria, and our director of operations uh, were the only ones at the office at making sure that everything was going smooth, but it was risky to even have our nurses on the road. Um, I'm happy to report not a single casualty. Um, we kept on tracking what was happening the next day and around 10, 11 p.m. or 12 midnight the night before, we would decide what the protocol, what level of emergency preparedness and every level had, had specific things agreed and rules. So we would decide on the level and announce it to everybody. Having said that, thanks to communication and Zoom and everything else, no matter what, we all show up on stand-up. And even if there's a hurricane, we do it. We all show up for stand-down. I mean, patients are being taken care of. We, we still did everything we were supposed to stand do. Stand up in the morning, stand down. Uh, stand-down happens at 4.30 p.m. I am shocked that business was uninterrupted and that most importantly, you could actually see your patients. You know, yeah. I mean, with all the, the freeze... I mean, the ice and the pipes busting and all of that. And the CEO of the company having no electricity and no water at home. So I showered at the office Thanks for, for a the week. info, Alfonso. <laughs> <laughs> I have. We have this shower on the second floor. And every day I came with my, with my backpack. And we kept on working. And, but I had no water and electricity at home. I'm not surprised that you just kept on pushing. Beautiful. We had to. It's, um, but that's what happens when, when, what, when you love what you do. That's what happens when you have, um, I'll speak for myself, a sense of purpose and mission in what you do, where the business element, of course, is incredibly important. If we don't, if we don't make a profit, we cannot pay our team members, we cannot grow, we cannot ideally have more than one hospice house like we, like we plan on doing. You need to look at, I do look uh, with a lot of discipline and not a lot of push and drive, the business elements of what we do, but never divorced from the, the care side and the human side. Um, um, we do a lot of things here that we're not required to do, so we go above and beyond. Yesterday, we have this. Um, we have this also this, this this methodology for keep picking up our phones. And the last line of command when all the phones are taken, and I don't like it to go to voicemail, I pick up. And a patient called yesterday because the facility where he lives took his television away. They lost his television, and he's telling me this. He doesn't know he's talking to his CEO, and I, I need my television. And so I. I called a social worker, a wonderful social worker, Mary, and, and sent her, sorry, I'm sorry, sent her a text. And I said, I got this patient, he's, he's having issues with his television. And, um, 
And she says, yes, the facility lost this TV. I said, let's buy him a new one. Will you buy it? I'll, I'll buy it. So we don't even think about it. We just do it, right? So most companies, especially companies owned by a big corporation, don't have the ability to do that. With, with us, the buck stops with me. The moment we get a call, in most cases from a patient, that's a 911 call. For this man who's at the end of his life and he's alone and probably without a family, his television is his way of remaining connected. That's what he's used to. He's probably watching his baseball game. He probably watches mass on that TV. Taking that away from him is not right. So somebody else took it away from him or we'll give it to him. Um, when we pick up the phone, I also we have, we have uh, meetings to understand how we're responding um, to the calls that come in, which are hundreds a month now. Um, and I try to remind our team, by the time a person is calling you to ask you for hospice, they have been through so much. They have been through bad news after bad news. Um, some of them are at the verge of losing their identity. A wife is about to become a widow. A son is about to become an orphan. So the journey that they have navigated before they call you is so complex that unless we meet them exactly where they are, we would do a disservice. Um, and um, with the storm, it was the same thing. We, we sat down and we said, okay, not only this um, group of people that we serve have been through a lot, but now they're about to potentially lose electricity and water and the medicines they need and the nurse that shows up every day and the aid that shows up to make sure that they're clean and the sheets are properly done and all that. So we couldn't afford that because that could have been the last week for that person. So I mean, their life, their life stops. If you guys stop coming into their house, I, I hear all the time some, from nurses. They might be the only person to see that. That they might be the only person to see that person in days. In some cases, in some cases, the, the patients are lucky to have a family system, and hospice is still there, right? But it, hospice is an extension of the, an already, in a lot of cases, very loving family system. But the people work. The people have other things to do. In some cases, they're completely alone. When with, with Harry, my first patient, he had no relatives alive. He had absolutely no one. Um, and um, yes, I was, in addition to his nurse, I was the last person who gave him a kiss in the forehead. I was the last person who said, I'll be here with you tomorrow morning. Yes, and I, and I take that very seriously. We all take that very yep. seriously. Alfonso, you might just be the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> Tell that to my daughter. My friend, thank you so much for making this work. You've got an incredible, you're doing an incredible thing and you're running an incredible company and it's been so fun to connect with you, especially after meeting you last year when all of this was under construction. Thank you. And, and, and I thank you and I thank you from the heart. And, I, and now I, I have to also be a businessman. And can I say the website for our company? I think if we cut this short, we would be doing Silverstone a disservice. <laughs> So is, if, if anybody wants to know more about us or have a patient with us or, or a referral with us or a family know more about hospice, is um, silverstonehospice.com um, or Silverstone Hospice Dallas on Google and it will show and, up. And, and can you 
can you talk about the areas that y'all service just so that anybody listening um, you. You might not service a certain area, but can you talk about where y'all do service? Yeah, think you know, I, I get overexcited when I'm talking about what we do. <laughs> and I thought about that and I and I didn't say it earlier, but now that we're here connected on this table, you're reading my mind. Oh my And if favorite. you're in an area that uh, Alfonso does not service, let him know and then he can start looking at how to service yes. you. Thank you. You're good. Yes. <laughs> um you want to work with us. <laughs> it's the uh we so we are in the medical district in Dallas. We're in forty one hundred Harry Hines. So it's it's almost in downtown Dallas. We serve 50 miles in a 50-mile radius from our location. So we go past Fort Worth in some cases, um, south of Dallas, um, Denton. So we all of that radius we cover. In some cases, it's 51 miles, 53 miles. And the idea over the next five years is to grow it, uh, to grow it more. But that's, that's what we do. We have patients in all of those areas. Alfonso, thank you again. Thank you.